All right. There's people kind of pour in here. Thank you for joining us on this Friday afternoon, sort of a, a midday happy hour of sorts. Um, we're joined by Sammy Kassab, research analyst at Masari, and founder Greg Osuri of Acash. We'll start off with a quick disclaimer here before I throw it to our speakers. Um, all opinions expressed by our hosts and our guests are merely their own opinions. They do not f- reflect any endorsements or opinions of their companies. This discussion is meant for informational purposes only. You should not take their opinions as investment advice, as you'll be solely responsible for your own investment. Hosts and guests may hold cryptocurrencies discussed in this Twitter spaces. Additionally, certain Masari employees are required to disclose their holdings, which is updated monthly and available at our website. Um, I will share a tweet, as always, with those disclosures. But without further ado, I'll kick it off to Sammy, and he'll, he'll give us a short preface um, before Greg introduces himself. All right. Thanks for that, Doug. Hey, everyone. My name is Sammy. Like you said, I'm a research analyst here with Masari. Uh, I specialize in Web3 infrastructure. And we have with us today Greg Asuri. And I'm really excited to have Greg on for this spaces because personally, I feel like he's somebody who's actually focused on the long-term vision of the space and actually the original ethos of the space, namely decentralization. Uh, He's also a builder. He works on his own protocol. Uh, He also understands the state of the crypto ecosystem right now because he's not just siloed in his own project, but he also contributes to multiple different areas in the overall ecosystem. So, Greg, welcome. Thanks so much, Simon, for the introduction. and super excited to be here. Yeah, so uh, it's been an exciting past few weeks. Um, some bad events, some good events. We just had the merge, which was successful. But we also, you know, have had some negative regulatory events, specifically with um, the tornado cash incident. And so just to give um, a little bit of a primer on our discussion. So last month, we had the U.S. Treasury come out and they sanctioned tornado cash, the protocol. And for those who don't know, Tornado Cash is a currency mixer on Ethereum. And basically what that means is it's a transaction privacy tool. And for me, I saw two problems with this right away. One, it was that, you know, our right to privacy is at risk. But two, which is the topic of this discussion, is it really demonstrated the lack of decentralization in the crypto ecosystem because immediately what we saw is we saw Um, RPC providers like Alchemine and Fura um, basically take down their RPC endpoints for Tornado Cash. We saw cloud hosting providers um, stop hosting the front ends. We saw their GitHub get taken down. Even some USDC got frozen in um, some, some contracts. And I'm sure I'm missing a few other actions that were taken, but it was it was a real shock to the community, and so the question I have for you, Greg, is like post sanctions, what was revealed? Like, how decentralized is crypto in reality, and what kind of implications come with that? All right. So I think it's fairly obvious post sanctions that crypto is not a single monolithic layer; it's actually multiple layers, right? Broadly speaking, I think you can categorize crypto uh, as a three-layered uh, system where you have the access points. Uh, the access points and uh, are essentially how people access uh, these crypto products. 
through DNS, through um, front ends, basically that's tied to a DNS. And then you have the data layer. Uh, data layer is the layer where the data is stored and the rules of uh, writing to the data, the rules of where the data is stored uh, is essentially the decentralized part, right? So, you know, uh, different blockchains offer different levels of security, Bitcoin being the biggest, most secure one. Uh, and Apple, Ethereum being the most uh, secure application layer, right? Application data application layer for data uh, storage, and then you have the base layer, which is the 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 layer where you have the uh, databases essentially the the, the state uh, is hosted and state is processed, right? So if you think about it, the even though the middle the data layer is decentralized, the access layer and uh, base layer is clear, not decentralized, right? And we saw that as a proof point. With it really began with uh, you know silent enforcement. I think from from the time when Uniswap Labs started uh, you know censoring or delisting certain tokens that the U.S. Treasury thinks should be delisted, to all the way to the recent you know uh, OFAC ban, which basically said you know. Um, you know, you sh any U.S. person or U.S.-related uh, entity should not interact with uh, with Tornado Cash in the sense it should not um, do a transaction, right? They clarified later saying that it doesn't really matter. I mean, visiting the website is okay. Actually publishing the code is okay. Just not conducting a transaction, that's illegal. Uh, the problem with their approach is like, I mean, the intentions are very, very... Uh, good right i mean obviously there's a lot of evidence that tornado cash was used for illicit purposes uh, especially by north koreans to to launder money and there's a lot of lot of evidence that you know tornado cash was used for illicit purposes but treasury banning tornado cash is not going to prevent uh, tornado cash from being from from being used for illicit purposes so you know so the the the, the extent of the ban is questionable and it's obviously being challenged right now uh, really, what the impact of the ban really brings, right? It prevents Americans and you know American-associated entities may not to not to provide liquidity or whatnot. But there's a whole world out there that has nothing to do with the U.S. Right. So my question is like by prevent by banning you know um, Americans from using Tornado, how are they solving North Koreans not using Tornado Cash? Right. So and. So the answer is, you know, you know, crickets, right? Nobody knows, right? So I think, like, if you really want to prevent uh, North Koreans from from using Tornado Cash, there are other effective ways that haven't been in, uh, that haven't even been explored nor discussed before the ban happened. So, so my concern really is that this ban happened without a lot of thought. Uh, even the approach, I mean, the even the developers, uh, American developers working on Tornado Cash, were not approached by 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 the government. Uh, I know this because I know a few of them, and so they just woke up one day and the you know, the thing was just on the OFAC list, right? And uh, and no arrests, no detentions, no communications at all with the, with the developers. Uh, I wish the government would have been a little more involved in like solving the problem, but but again, I can't speak to to U.S. government. Um, and uh, and uh, and so that's the base, that's the front end, and then the then the over compliance came, right? So yes, government bank compliance is important, over compliance is dangerous. Over compliance, where you had 
you know, essentially alchemies and infurers, even the so-called so-called decentralized networks, it's a pocket. You know, all of them sort of like came and said, "We're not going to enable uh, uh, tornado cash hosting of any form," even though, you know, I think Treasury came out recently and said it's okay. I mean, you're not really doing a transaction. You're not really calling like a like a exchange, right? But it doesn't matter. You can interact with the code, and you're okay with it. But still, GitHub went and banned. Tornado Cash repositories, even the government says not, it's not illegal, but they just overcompliant and they even banned uh, uh, the the users, the the accounts of uh, of our contributors. And the worst part is they're still charging them money, you know. So it's like these the effects of like uh, in OFAC, you know, OFAC is you know is the highest level of like I think uh, sanctions, right? That that anyone can put anything on. Uh, the the effects are like uh, these uh, you know complete disregard for for what the law is right over compliance and there is this breakdown of the centralized uh, system on the whole now now I feel like if we have a more decentralized systems there would be a lot more real effort in actually preventing bad actors instead of you know, in, instead of what we have right now, which is a pseudo decentralized system, in the sense the access points are not decentralized, even though the core system is decentralized. And it's easy for government to be like, hey, use the web two tools, web two mechanisms to ban, but not in don't, but not really a web three mechanism, right? Like, um, so, um, so my take is like, we got to do better um, in decentralizing access points and uh, um, be, Web two or web one kind of solve this. Like you know, if you really look at internet as sort of like this decentralized system with original intent of avoiding uh, single points of failure, uh, you had companies like um, companies like AOL, companies that actually went ahead and like created these choke points. But the world came around, the market came around, and 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 rejected those choke points, and it went again back to decentralization. Now we are seeing the opposite, where you have heavy concentration of compute power uh, by 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 few providers, right? So there's this constant battle. I feel like the internet uh, uh, goes through over the, over its uh, series of phases. And Web three, what we are seeing is not something new. This happened before, and uh, and uh, and I think the best solution is not the government intervention; it's really the in- industry. Uh, self-correcting and uh, it, it's starting to happen like on on the same side right you had on one hand you had us treasury that banned you know uh, uh to cash which is a privacy protocol on the other hand we saw us uh us military dod embrace secret network and akash for enhancing their privacy right so like uh and this is within 30 days of the ban right so you, it's very clear that Someone like U.S. military, which really cares about protecting their privacy, and they, and their use case was uh, essentially developing a solution where they can send secure documents between units, not using without using mail, uh, and maintaining sovereignty uh, for the privacy they have. Very clear use case on how to enhance the privacy. They they you know they did they actually researched and worked on it, and and uh, they found use for it. Right. So, I guess we are so sort of like. Uh, we, we're seeing the government embrace uh, crypto in different ways, and de- depending on who you talk to, uh, I think military has a, has an amazing viewpoint as to how how they view Web three and whatnot. So, 
Yeah. <clears throat> and I think a key point of what you said as well was that when these tornado cash sanctions were put into place, we also saw some decentralized protocols. I'm putting decentralized in, in quotes. Take action as well. Um, and that's par- partly because there were some sing- uh, like single points of failure in there, some centralized points of failure. But it really got me thinking, assuming that these protocols were completely decentralized with no single point of failure, isn't there still like the project or dev team that you know government entities can go after? Because I think people have this vision in crypto where, oh, if we completely decentralize, you know, you can do whatever you want, and a little bit of like an anarchist view, you know. But um, so basically, I think what you're saying is like there needs to be, there will be regulations, but they need to be balanced. Is that kind of what you're getting at? So there is law and there is sovereignty, right? I mean, like decentralization doesn't mean you can do whatever the hell you want. Decentralization means you have a lot of control on what you do, and the the control, what you do, the control is up to you, right? So I mean, like anything, you can use for good things or bad things. Like if you use for bad things, I think uh, uh, decentralized systems are are way better than some centralized systems to be able to track down, right? Like I'll give you an example with Akash Network itself, right? We, like, a big problem that keeps me up at night is like, okay, Akash is permissionless system. Anybody can deploy anything on it. What happens if something really bad gets deployed? Like something like, you know, uh, uh, child pornography or something, right? Like for that, I think like ultimately providers on Akash Network are, are responsible for the content they serve and they should be able to moderate like any other provider, right? And we'll, and there are a lot of moderation tools that are in play. <clears throat> And this is a joint effort, I guess, <clears throat> a lot of the decentralized UGC platforms, right, user-generated content platforms, uh, should, uh, uh, you know, sh- should make it easy for, for their users to, to use. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you know, a decentralized systems doesn't mean you got to break the law. I mean, it actually it, it's a very powerful tool for law enforcement to, to trace you back, right? So I think like because everything is on online, right? Like so, in fact, uh, you saw people like TRM Labs or people like you know Channel Analysis make a very strong case on how they were able to help law enforcement a lot better than than a a closed centralized system. Um, yeah, that that's really where where my stance is on like censorship resistance versus like compliance, right? Like, but again, what what is law? Law is different uh, based on jurisdiction. Like uh, something like you know, child pornography is universally shunned, right? Obviously, every country uh, in the world, I don't think there's a single country that, that would encourage people to do that, right? And if you are hosting that, you should go to jail. Uh, but other, you know, policies depends on the country, right? So it's, you gotta, uh, you gotta comply with, with whatever jurisdiction that you gotta comply with. And, uh, and Akash Network ultimately is an IP address, right? That hosts a piece of content. The IP address is still IPv4 or IPv6. That has some association in the in in the centralized database. We have not gotten to a truly decentralized IP uh, uh, based networking uh, system. It's still TCP/IP underneath the hood, right? So, now as long as you connect to TCP/IP, I think uh, uh, you know uh, it's pretty easily traceable. And I'm pretty sure any other technologies uh, that would be high level abstraction would still trace you back, right? So. 
yeah, completely agree with you on that. I, I like how you how you phrased that. Um, kind of moving the conversation now towards a little bit of a, a little bit on the node centralization. So, in some of my research, I've seen that I've I've dug into the top two ecosystems being Ethereum and Solana, and what I've seen is that their node infrastructure uh, are largely hosted on like a handful of big cloud providers. And so kind of running through some data that I collected about a month ago, like ETH nodes were on or the percent of ETH, ETH hosted nodes. You had 50% on AWS, 15% on Hetzner, 4% on OVH. And then looking at Solana, you know, you had 42% on Hetzner, 26% OVH, 3% uh, on AWS. And I think sometime around last month, we also saw Hetzner come out and basically make a statement saying that any crypto-related services or apps could not run on their cloud and it violated their terms of service. And so, like, there's obviously risks here. How, how do we move forward? Right. The risk here, I mean, so the cloud providers, first of all, why crypto uh, node, uh, you know, um, you know, runners or, or miners prefer cloud providers is because they're easy. Right? They're easy to get started. They're very convenient. I mean, they've matured over time. They've gotten really good, right? They scale well. They've, uh, you know, they, they've, you know, they've come along a lot, right? Um, and they're manageable when it comes to cost they're not the least uh, most cost efficient option but they're manageable if you can sort of like make a case for uh, productivity versus cost right especially in a bull market where everybody's making a lot of money you know you don't really care about like the cost right uh, things are changing quite a lot now um but the problem is reliance on a single provider so it's very very rare you will see node run node hosting companies use multiple providers right or and have any sort of failover between these providers. So disaster recovery becomes a huge problem if you rely on a single host, right? And no designs by design, you they do not actually encourage multi-regional uh, deployments because there's always this uh, risk of like double signing, yada, yada, yada. There's inherently a failure in the node design for the most uh, blockchains, I know this for sure in Cosmos nodes, that prevent you from a multi, uh, you know, multi, uh, uh, multi-regional deployment, right? And I think that's that's a bigger risk. Like, there's an argument to be made, like, hey, you know, you know, well, fifty percent of nodes, cloud hosts, nodes run on Amazon. If Amazon shuts down, uh, uh, Ethereum, you can all move to like some other cloud, right? Yeah, in theory, it's possible. In practical practicality, you're going to see a disruption. There's going to be a several day, if not weeks, levels of disruption with degraded services. The real question you should be asking is: Is that some? Is that the future we want? A disrupted blockchain, or like Lido uh, has about fifty percent of uh, of node power, right? It's, it's a pool, granted, but I guarantee you, they're hosting probably on a single provider. Right, there, I, mean, I haven't seen anything to indicate they have. Uh, at least, it's not public. Uh, I don't know the internals, but it's not public that there are, there is a multi-cloud disaster recovery strategy. Right. So, what like we? I think the big risk is well, you have like disaster recovery, 
and just like uh, fall tolerance and fail over. And second risk is cost, right? Like the if decentralization is expensive, it's prohibitive. And cloud is getting worse. And this is an article, beautiful article by by uh, Anderson Horowitz recently called the paradox of cloud cost a trillion dollar paradox or something. And they uh, they have studied several companies uh, that they are part of the board and. Turns out 50% of every dollar you and I spend on online services like Asana, like Netflix, like, you know, uh, uh, yeah, you know uh, Notion or whatever, goes to Amazon or, 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 or Google. 50%. The Amazon tax. The Amazon tax. It's invisible tax that we all have. And guess who pays the bill? I mean, we end up paying because uh, the costs and, and the savings come down to the come down to the user. And and that's one uh, data point. Another data point is that is the death of data centers, right? So be, before in 2018, you had about 8.4 million data centers. Now you have about 7.1 million data centers. So the, and, and the hyperscalers are getting a lot more, a uh, lot bigger because there's really, really very, very little options to get cloud-like capability on data centers. Right. So you can either have a data center or you can have a cloud. You can't use your data center capacity as a cloud provider. That's that's a big challenge, right? The convenience is a challenge, not the compute. Right? Even though there are 7.1 million data centers, why do we prefer the Amazon 16? Why? Because Amazon just has a better way to deploy tools, right? So, so what's, what's the main difference there, if you, if you don't mind breaking that down between like the data centers and and the large clouds? Like, Correct. So when you have a data center, uh, like let's say Colo, right? So for, for deploying a box in a Colo, a co-located data center is number one, you go to the data center and you, you know, strike a deal. You say that, hey, I want to put uh, a rack of uh, servers in your cluster and I'm going to go purchase the servers from Dell or wherever you want to you know, purchase, configure them, send it to your to your actual physical data center and purchase all the disks and you know lease the space in your in your, in your, in your physical like uh, data center and uh, have you plug in my computers and you know and manage them for me change the disks when they need to and you know when they're, they're you know make sure there's electricity make sure there's like you know, a, a uh, enterprise grade like uh, internet yada 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 right and i'm going to pay you x amount of dollars per month so to acquire a box uh, a server using this this column method takes about anywhere from one month to three months, right? So it's very very expensive. It's very time consuming, but the ba- the advantage is it's a lot of capex and there's very little opex, right? So you own the box. You can do whatever the hell you want with it. So it's very cheap to operate once you have it, but want to acquire them is very hard. And then if you don't have enough demand, you end up paying for the box, right? So there is this like acquisition problem, and then there is retention um, uh, sustainability problem, right? So um, so that's why people prefer versus a cloud provider where you basically pay by the hour. There's no acquisition problem. There is no uh, maintenance of the box. And if you don't like the box, you switch to another configuration in a matter of minutes. And you pay a premium for that, the cloud premium. Right, so it's great if you want to get started, and if you want to, if you're not sure what you need, and if you want to get quickly, uh, if you want to go to market quickly, 
you use your uh, use a cloud provider at a premium. But if you want something permanent like a blockchain, you know, you shouldn't be using because a three month time in a blockchain is worth it because you have complete control over cost and complete control over over privacy and yada yada yada. So what Akash comes into play and does, I think, um, is really enables you to have your own data center. Why that gives you sovereignty and and control, uh, and uh, you know uh, offer uh, sell any unused capacity you have in the data center to people that want to use it, or tap into a larger pool when you want to scale, right? So I think like the danger of like um, you know using a single provider and you know is basically like and you have outages, right? And uh, in fact, I didn't realize Wikipedia has a dedicated page for Amazon outages. And the last outage was data loss outage, right? Even though Amazon's great and probably the best solution out there, the um, the uh, the problem is this heavy concentration of compute power. No matter leads to outages all the time. It's just the nature of the beast. It's very, very, very hard to scale to manage scale at Amazon level, right? So you're going to have someone that's going to hot finger a piece of code that shouldn't be there, causing outage. No matter how many processes you have, you're going to have faults, right? And the scary part of a running crypto infrastructure on uh, on a centralized provider is like these outages will lead to disruption. Uh, in some cases, the outages, I mean, in some cases you have outright bans by someone like Hetzner that basically said, if you deploy anything in crypto, you got to go out. But that is policy driven by some, some suit that has no idea sitting in a boardroom somewhere, right? Like... Like you have that censorship level attack, you have like outage level attack, um, and then uh, essentially uh, uh, you have supply chain attacks, right? Like supply chain attacks in the sense like you really have no idea what you're getting in terms of box. There's no auditing. There's no external person giving you. Uh, there's no third person looking at is this box kosher or not. There's there's really no way to know what Hetzner box you're deploying on, who has access to the box, and they tell you, you know. You know, it's safe or whatnot, but it's no way to know, right? So there's this just like obscure obfuscation uh, attack, right, that can incur while running on the centralized provider. So uh, the question you should be asking is: this a future you want uh, for crypto, or you is there a better one? Uh, uh, can we work as an industry together? Yeah, and, and you already highlighted kind of the main value proposition that I see with Akash, which is that multi-cloud capability, right? So like. And just the simplicity that comes along with that. You can just choose multiple providers when you're kind of like onboarding onto one of them. And that just increases, you know, the resiliency. Um, and back to, back to what you said about like if any data is lost, you still have like a backup somewhere else. Um, and so is Akash is currently hosting a lot of nodes right now, right? Could you like, are they also hosting like, like, are you able to host like an Ethereum validator on Akash at, at this time, or is that something that's still in development? No, you totally can. I mean, it's, uh, it's, I think we're going to show a demo very soon. Um, it's well, capabilities wise, we have um, uh, for a little background, we, we launched Akash platform about a year ago. Uh, when we launched, it was ephemeral only in the sense you, 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 you any data you store on Akash will uh, only live. Uh, during the life cycle of the deployment or the lease. So once the lease ends, your data goes away. Or like if there is a restart, you know, there was no like network storage that, so it takes forever to like sync back. 
now we have network storage, which makes it ideal for a lot of nodes because nodes have a lot of uh, huge, you know, state files, right? Ethereum alone has 300 gigabyte state file, I believe. Uh, 300 gigabyte state file, which is humongous if you think about it, right? If you have to like uh, sync every time you have a restart. With network storage or persistent storage, you can sync once and you're good to go. And we're also going to optimize for local snapshots within Akash network itself. So uh, downloading a, a ledger uh, will not be an extraneous process. It'll be very, very quick, probably way better than Amazon because they're not verticalizing, right? And we are verticalizing very soon. Um, and a big uh, feature that was missing was dedicated IP addresses. Uh, this is especially important for protocols that have fixed port uh, ranges for you know service discovery and whatnot, like Solana. So, and uh, with Akash, uh, you, so far you were getting dynamic ports because IP address space was being shared between deployments. Now we have IP address leasing. It's currently in test and it should go in production after mainnet, uh, after Masari mainnet um, in a few weeks. So, but with that, I mean, you can start testing in, in testnets right now. It works really well. Uh, you can get dedicated IP addresses. Uh, and there's a whole process for providers to be able to get the ASN blocks. And I learned a lot about IP addresses in the last few weeks. Uh, and uh, so the providers do the heavy work of like uh, getting you a block of IPs and you can choose an IP and have dedicated ports. This enables a lot more nodes, like especially like, uh, like uh, my favorite uh, uh, handshake nodes, right? Handshake is essential DNS, then in port 53, which is a privileged port. And now with Akash, you, can, you couldn't get that before, but now with IP address leasing, you can actually have a port 53. And Solana runs on port 8,800 uh, 8, uh, plus one or minus port range. Now you can have Solana running on Akash. Uh, uh, and ETH will run exactly like the way you would run on a centralized infrastructure, right? So the node hosting is coming with a bang. I think IP addresses will fill complete the, the solution we needed. Uh, uh, and uh, you, sh you know, and GPUs are, are next. So, if you have any GPU style uh, proof of work style workloads, I think that's going to be supported as well very, very soon. So, we'll have a complete node hosting solution. Uh, um, you know, like a full full fledged node hosting solution, and, and next would be just user interfaces, right? Like, uh, and we want to develop non custodial user interfaces, and it's very, very critical uh, to access these uh, these node hosting platforms. And we have a little surprise at Masari Mainnet, our head of uh, product, uh, Anil, uh, who, by the way, is uh, it's going to blow you away with, with the demo. Uh, he came from uh, HashiCore. HashiCore, for, the, for those of you who don't know, is a leader in uh, infrastructure. I mean, they created this tool called Terraform, which, which a lot of people use. Um, Vault, and, uh, you know, and, and like, so he was actually the uh, leading Terraform effort. So it's a very, very, very in tune when it comes to like developer experiences. So we'll be showcasing a, a, a tool uh, during Masari uh, a talk, uh, Anil's Masari talk. So, and I think you'll you'll get an idea as to where the state of uh, uh, node hosting is and you know, the non-custodial node hosting is. And and and, and I think you'll, you're gonna like it. That's awesome. <clears throat> I'm definitely excited for that. And it's. It's great to hear all these developments on Akash, like you were saying about persistent storage. So I feel like it couldn't have come at a better time as we're seeing these um, regulations and sanctions and just mainly this like centralization and all these like large cloud providers continue to grow and people starting to ask themselves like, okay, what's an alternative here? What, what can we use? And I feel like Akash is 
perfectly positioned here to, you know, offer a alternative solution or an alternative, um, alternative method. And one thing that you kind of mentioned earlier too, is that like during the bull market, it's kind of just like a theory of mine, but I feel like most projects, you know, they were just trying to, um, they were just trying to build as fast as they could. Right. So like that kind of led them to just go like the centralization route. Let's be honest. Most people were focused on just like number go up, just get this thing launched as fast as possible. And now that we're in this bear market, where, you know, validator earnings, for example, might have gone down and uh, you're still stuck with potentially a high price or a high cost for at these cloud providers. Now there may there's people probably rethinking like, okay, is there a cheaper alternative here? And to them, I would say, go check out Akash, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, so I guess to kind of bring this full circle back to what we started talking about, um, so if you had to like kind of prioritize where the industry should start to decentralize first, like would you say it's like the DNS layer, like RPC endpoints, is it storage, is it front ends? Um, what, what should the industry be focusing on first? Yeah, I think it's in the access layer, right? Like so, yes. I mean, uh, base layer is is uh, uh, you know I think is base layer is, is developer facing access layer is consumer facing right so so base layer you have a lot more control i think using platforms like cash and pocket when they're going to like decentralize i think they have v1 working which is a decentralized version you have several other decentralized players um, that are actually uh, getting good right um there's another layer that i haven't touched it's called the supply chain layer i'll, I'll get into that in a bit um, I think uh, because supply chain layer touches both, I wouldn't call it a layer, I think it's more of like a vertical, right? It touches all three systems, all three layers, right? The supply chain decentralization. Um, but I think uh, base layer uh, is, is getting there good, but not too much work is going on in the access layer. There is a, a proposal that we're, uh, we're there's, there's an update for on Akash on how to decentralize the access layer. Uh, like really decentralized, not just do IPFS hosting because IPFS is great or to host like static applications, but very very limited, right? So you can't really do um, uh, server-side rendering, for example. You have a React app, right? So without server-side rendering, you're going to just create like very uh, clunky applications that are not good for consumers, right? So you don't have middleware support. You don't have a lot of like uh, uh, you know cloud level support that enhances user experience so so you need that you need to solve that um and uh, so i think we're going to see so what we're working on akash is you is, is something called interchain accounts so interchain accounts allows for different blockchains to call akash in a fully fully on chain right not using off chain so essentially a Juno network, smart contract and Juno network, which is written in Cosmwasm, can own a deployment on Akash. So that means you can see smart contracts owning deployments on Akash. That means DAOs can now own deployments on Akash without a human involved. So uh, now DAOs can do you know, front ends, right? Or they can host a node. If there's a DAO for node host, like a validator DAO can directly host uh, on Akash and now 
the human attack vector is eliminated, right? So if you had to take it down, you had to take down the smart contract. That means if you have a voting mechanism to take down, depending on how your DAO is structured, if you have a voting mechanism to 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 take down the smart contract or the deployment, you can use that. Or if you design your smart contract in a way it's immutable, that means you know a lot of good smart contracts. I think developers once they deploy them, throw away the keys, right? Uh, the deployment keys. If you have an immutable stop smart contract, the deployment becomes immutable, right? So I think stuff like that is going to push the boundaries of what censorship is going to look like. And if you combine something like that with handshake, where you have discovery level layer decentralization, which is a huge problem, you can still have, you know, DNS as attack vector, right? We saw that with GoDaddy being hacked. We saw that a lot of these DeFi protocols would use GoDaddy DNS, and there would be like a attack every now and then where they would, you know, point, they would change the DNS using clever, you know, social uh, engineering techniques to, to change the DNS, and that's a huge attack vector. So removing this, uh, moving to handshake uh, now can give you this immutability and now I'll add that to the supply chain in the sense like the supply chain is like where the code gets produced, like GitHub, to the way, to where, to all the way to where the code gets uh, published or deployed. We need to have a verifiable, composable supply chain for, for crypto, right? So. If you talk to anybody that maintains a large repository, they will tell you the problems with GitHub. GitHub is not optimal for large open source projects. Even Linus Torvalds hates GitHub because he just doesn't, even though he created Git to be a decentralized system, and he personally hates the pull request mechanism of GitHub. So GitHub was not designed, GitHub is a centralized version of Git, essentially. Git is great, Git is decentralized. GitHub made Git easy to use, right? So, uh, GitHub is a SaaS platform, for for lack of a better word. So there's a lot of amazing things you can do with Git itself. There are a few projects, uh, Gitopia, uh, Radical, and a few others that are decentralizing Git in itself and bringing Git back to the original roots uh, by adding decentralized collaborative uh, functionality. And you can imagine a code contributor that's anonymous or you know is private can contribute on on on, on Gitopia. Or uh, you know, a radical and have that code base automatically built and deployed to either IPFS or Arweave or or Akash, depending on different assets. If you want immutable deployments, permanent deployments, Arweave is a great option. And um, you know, have that running on Akash by a smart contract, so you have unstoppable deployments now, tied to a handshake domain uh, for discovery. And as long as you're using handshake, you can access this 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 website. Uh, and have a fully verifiable supply chain end to end. That way, you can have a coin gecko that will basically show the smart contract saying that, hey, this is the smart contract. You know, it's verifiable. It's it's a real front end. It's not a fake front end. You don't have civil attacks. And something like Brave can even do further verification because all that is on blockchain, right? And that is the level of supply chain decentralization that we need in order to, like, uh, you know, uh, remove our reliance on 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 uh, centralized entities and big big attack vectors here are like DNS level, uh, source control level, deployment level. Uh, there are so many different levels that uh, uh, so many different attack vectors before it gets to uh, to decentralizing access layer that we need to solve. And uh, things are things are moving along pretty good, right? I mean, the radical folks and Gitopia folks and so on, some other get a decentralization protocol. They're all moving very fast. Um, they're all trying to get this problem solved. 
I think within a year or two years time, you're going to see a beautiful, interoperable, different protocols working with each other, fully verifiable, fully on-chain, like world, right? Uh, and uh, that's the world I, I, I can't wait to, to experience. Yeah, that was going to be what I was going to ask is like, how long until we see some of these protocols like able to use this fully decentralized supply chain. I, I love that that term supply chain. I was kind of thinking of it more as like a, a like a tech stack, but yeah, at the end of the day, it is it is like a supply chain. But so you're hoping like a year, two years out, you know, these protocols will be mature enough to where we can kind of see a fully decentralized um, tech stack or supply chain, if you want to call it. Yeah, that. in fact, so interchain accounts will go into production. Interchain accounts are currently in uh, in testnet for Akash. They go to production with mainnet four. That's post Masari mainnet. <laughs> Not to confuse mainnet four mainnet, but anyway, yeah. so we have Akash mainnet four that's releasing in three weeks uh, after Masari mainnet, and that'll have interchain accounts. That means you'll start interoperability, like an account on Juno network, a smart contract essentially, which is an account, can own a deployment on Akash. We're also working with Secret. Secret is the the other project DoD used. So imagine secret deployments. You can have a secret smart contract own a deployment on Akash, right? fully private deployments, right? And that's the level of sort of like, inter- that's the level of interoperability interchain accounts is going to bring. Um, and I think with interchain security coming to Atom, it's going to take another ne- level because now Atom Hub users can deploy directly on Akash that is not a app chain. So it can, you can essentially have a Ethereum smart contract ultimately deploy onto a cache, right? With MOS, uh, you know, basically with EVM support, now you can see EVM-based smart contracts deploy on a cache. So I think uh, the interoperability is just going to make deployment on a cache take it to the next level. Now we have all chains that can effectively deploy on a cache without having an Akash account, right? You can do, uh, you know, there, there are online swap mechanisms that we're working on with whatever uh, tokens that, you know, as long as there's a liquidity uh, that can swap from one token to another token on chain, you can essentially have that be part of your, you know, your, your smart contract to deploy on a cache. So it's starting to happen. Um, it's not like a year from it's literally like three weeks right like we, we will have this capability and integrations will take a few more few more months uh but i think in the next six months we're going to see a cross-chain uh dow owned deployment on akash right um and uh DAOs are amazing because now you can even think of like profit sharing like if you're a node operator right like you can you can have a DAO that operates a node completely controlled by uh you know by the smart contract and and the proceeds can go back to back to people fully on chain fully verifiable right i think you're going to be like you're going to see quite a lot of these kind of like profit sharing decentralized uh, fully on chain applications uh, using a lot of compute power uh, you know arbitrary compute power on akash uh, to do amazing things um, and DAODAO is deeply integrated. DAODAO is a DAO uh, framework on, on Juno. There are about 4,000 DAOs. And they're deeply integrating Akash right now with interchain accounts. So it's really exciting. Yeah, um, I'm beyond excited based off what you just said. I think everybody here is excited on that future interop- interoperability. I think you made a great case um, for DAOs to use Akash. It almost seems like a no-brainer. Uh, I think that's a perfect place to kind of wrap it up. So I just want to say thank you very much for joining uh, joining us today, Greg. 
provided a lot of great insight and looking forward to seeing you at mainnet yeah i'll be on mainnet uh, i think on day two of the speaking so really excited to see everybody there uh we've got i mean i'm pretty sure ryan is a uh, big uh, regulatory uh, <laughs> you know you know single issue water so it's gonna it's gonna be a lot of fun yeah i wouldn't want to <laughs> miss it yeah. But yeah, thanks again. I'm going to hand it back to Doug right now to uh, close us out. Awesome, gentlemen. Uh, Greg, thank you for joining us. Sammy, thank you for moderating um, this conversation. Uh, I think Sammy kicked it off well in the beginning, kind of reframing um, the focus that was put back on to infrastructure and decentralizing post-tornado cash sanctions. Uh, as Greg said, he will be speaking at Mainnet on the 22nd, uh, you can catch them 3.40 p.m. Eastern Time. That'll be on the operating advice stage, uh, talking about main, mainstream firms plugging into crypto. And you can also catch Sammy. He'll be moderating uh, a couple panels and then also speaking on infrastructure, Filecoin specifically on Friday for a sponsor session at 12.40 p.m. Eastern Time. So, gentlemen, thank you again. If you haven't bought your tickets mainnet.events and a little piece uh, to give back post-merge, a little post-merge giving, 300 off mainnet. Get your tickets now. We're literally days away. Um, and hopefully this was a, a nice primer, a nice preface for you guys to, to get you excited and get a little FOMO going before the big event. But again, thank you, gentlemen. Thanks so much, guys. It was fun. Thanks. Have a good one, guys.